Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us on this Therapeutic Thursday podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down and discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Dr. Harshal Shukla, and I'm the Clinical Pharmacy Manager for Surgical Services and Anesthesiology at the Montefiore Medical Center in Bronx, New York. I'll be your host for today's episode. With me are Dr. Nicholas Quinn, a Clinical Pharmacy Manager in Critical Care at Montefiore Medical Center, and Dr. Tina Chen, Attending Physician of Critical Care at Montefiore Medical Center and the Director of our Medical Intensive Care Unit at our Moses campus. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Quinn and Dr. Chen. Thanks for having us. Let's get into today's topic on the updates in the management of ICU delirium. What is ICU delirium and why is it detrimental in our patients? So the ICU delirium is defined as an acute disturbance of consciousness with inattention accompanied by a change in cognition that fluctuates over time. This sounds very similar to a lot of our cognitive disorders, um, but the big difference being that acute change or that fluctuation in change, which kind of um, differentiates it from other cognitive disorders like dementia um, and things along those lines. And when it comes to ICU delirium, we don't really actually know exactly what causes it. It can be thought to be a neurotransmitter dysfunction, whether that is with a cholinergic deficiency or dopaminergic excess. Um, It can be caused by cerebral hypoperfusion, can possibly be caused by neurotoxic effects from inflammatory cytokines. So there's a lot of different theories as to what causes it, which is also why it it makes it a very interesting topic and a difficult to treat topic. Having ICU delirium can lead to adverse outcome in the patients as well. We know that the increased length of stay increases a patient's time on ventilator and perhaps leading to worse clinical outcome. And we know that having patients on a ventilator for longer than needed could increase their risk for injury to their retropharyngeal spaces, as well as increase their risk for um, more infection related to the ventilator or other infections in their bodies. And I think ultimately, not just to the patient itself, for the caretakers too, right? So family seeing someone who they love and now completely out of their mind can be really hard and add to their recovery in the long-term settings as well. So with that, what are the risk factors for developing ICU delirium and how do we assess for it? I think risk factor for delirium in the ICU is pretty much just being in the ICU is a scary place, right? A lot of time when patients are intubated, we start off with high dose sedation and that really already start messing up with the chemical balance in their brains. They're on mechanical ventilation. Are we overdosing opiates thinking that the patient have pain or other hemodynamic um, instability? I think intrinsically in the ICU, alarms are going off all the time. We time blood draw at all hours of the day and night, um, and disrupted sleep also could contribute highly to risk of developing delirium in the ICU. I think past medical history could also contribute to the patient's risk for delirium, right? So if someone is dependent on alcohol and baseline, and now in the ICU, we take this away, 
Um, they could go into withdrawal. People could have toxic metabolic syndrome in their brain as well. Having baseline dementia, baseline cognitive disorders can also contribute. And in terms of um, how do we assess for it, there's two validated tools that we use in the ICU to assess for ICU delirium. This includes the most common CAM ICU um, or a confusion assessment method for the ICU. And there's another tool that's likely used a little less common across health systems and in the studies, which is the intensive care delirium screening checklist. Although different, they are both validated and both focus on looking at inattention, disorganized thinking. When you look at CAM ICU, you're making sure these patients can basically like follow sequences of letters that the provider is listing or asking questions like, can you use a hammer to pound a nail? Does one pound weigh more than two? And things like that. And based on the errors, assessing if this patient is delirium positive or not. Nick, you would agree with this, right? Like a lot of times I feel like our resident will tell us, oh yeah, the patient's wide awake, but without assessing formally of their delirium level, we, we really actually don't know. Even if someone is awake and interactive, it doesn't mean that they're not delirious. We have cases of patients leaving the ICU and actually came back and speak with us on their experience in the ICU and turnout that when we thought the patient was wide awake and totally with it, he had no memory of what happened. And it took him about two weeks out of the ICU to really regain a bearing of his surrounding and understanding um, what was going on to him. Yeah, certainly, regardless of the level of lethargy or activity, or if the patient's as calm as can be, you really can't um, know their delirium status until you really assess for the, the actual thinking of that patient, for sure. Yeah. That was extremely informative, Tina and Nick. Transitioning for our listeners to some clinical considerations in practice, if a patient's positive for delirium, how should it be treated? For me as a clinician, I, I always ask, um, why is this patient delirious? Obviously, you know, in the ICU, there's so many causes that we talked about. First things that I would recommend um, and really force our staff to do is to uh, minimize noise, improve their sleep quality, and make sure that there is a really good day and night cycle. If for some reason, our, uh, in our ICU, the lights hang right over a patient's head, so they often turn it off just so that it's not bright um, to their eyes. But we really should have a certain light signal for the patient to understand night, day, um, and that could also help. We do a great job in early mobilization here. Even if the patient's vented, as long as they're awake, we get them out of bed. Some of them are even walking as well. And I think the non-pharmacologic strategies to start with is a great first step. I would definitely agree that non-farm is, is certainly going to be an important first step because when you mention how should we treat it, uh, we really don't have great data or literature on effective therapies and even our pain agitation delirium guidelines for the recommendation in terms of the use of antipsychotics, they do not recommend routine use. So it's not that they don't recommend it, but they certainly don't recommend routine use, but do mention that small studies show potential benefit. So when we talk about antipsychotics for treatment, first we're thinking about, you know, most commonly probably haloperidol or first generation. Um, but when we think about going to haloperidol, you're usually thinking the combative, agitated, danger to themselves and others type of patient, as opposed to our second generation um, antipsychotics or atypical antipsychotics that include 
likely most commonly quetiapine, but certainly other agents like olanzapine have been used, risperidone, um, aripiprazole, all of these agents that have varying routes of administration, different pharmacokinetics, um, different side effects associated with them, and likely most importantly, even different receptor activities and affinities um, that really makes not all atypical antipsychotics the same. I mentioned quetiapine is probably most common that I've seen in my practice. And for me, that's most likely because of a uh, study by John Devlin in 2010, which is really one of our only studies that showed a benefit in uh, reduction of duration of delirium, though it didn't have a mortality or length of stay benefit. Granted, it was only 36 patients because as the guidelines mentioned, we don't have that large scale data to support the use of antipsychotics. The best study we do have in recently, um, few, four years ago now in the New England Journal was Mind USA, which was actually also our institution was a part of that study in which they used prazodone or haloperidol to look at reducing the duration of delirium, looking at time to ICU discharge, looking at mortality. And it was a very well-designed study, but um, of course had some flaws as all studies do. Uh, the biggest one I can think of is that almost 90% of patients in that trial had hypoactive delirium. And as I mentioned, when we're usually thinking about jumping to antipsychotics, especially using haloperidol, you're really thinking about it in those agitated, combative patients, or at least the hyperactive type of patients. But although it didn't see benefit, we really didn't see much harm either. And we, when it comes to other options, um, as we mentioned, there's what other options do we really have? We have the non-farm options, we have antipsychotics, and then what else, what else is there really? I'm a big proponent of the ABCDEF bundle, and I think that would also help, like in, in addition to all the pharmacy stuff, the pharmaceuticals that we could add on, right? If we could wake patient up early, we do breathing trials to get them off and really do early mobilization, engage the family. Um, I think during COVID, Many of the hospital have limited visiting hours, but whenever the families are around or friends who could help orient the patient, it's a multi-prone approach to managing these patients, right? Not just non-pharmacologic, not just pharmacologic. If we could combine everything together, that really could help um, getting them out of the ICU safely. <laughs> Those are some great, great points and insights on how we can take from the literature available and apply it to our practice directly. With that, are there any alternatives to antipsychotics for treatments of ICU delirium? So yeah, we definitely have a, a couple options that we can think about as well. But again, all of this is going to have limited evidence behind it, limited data to support the practice. But one of one of my favorites, probably one of our favorites that we've noticed some good outcomes anecdotally with is valproic acid. When we think about valproic acid for delirium and even agitation, we don't know exactly how it works, but possibly due to its GABAergic properties. But it does have some small studies showing potential benefit in delirium. And unlike the antipsychotics, it has a very different side effect profile that is favorable in a lot of these patients. It's not overly sedating. It doesn't prolong the QTC interval, doesn't really have any major hemodynamic effects. So a lot of the reasons that we might have to stay away from antipsychotics, valproic acid might be a potential option as long as you're diligent about making sure the patients aren't on meropenem because for some reason, anytime we want to start valproic acid for 
agitation, it happens to be a patient on, with an ESBL organism on meropenem, or making sure their platelets are good, their liver function is good, um, and making sure we, we follow those things about the stay. So that's definitely been one of our favorites. And then um, another potential adjunct or additive is going to be dexmedetomidine. In the pain agitation delirium guidelines I referenced earlier, um, they do mention they suggest using dexmedetomidine for delirium in mechanically ventilated adults where agitation is precluding extubation. So it really is kind of our normal practice with Presidex or dexmedetomidine in that peri-extubation phase when they just need something to take that edge off so that you can, you can pull the tube. And there has been a lot of data looking at nocturnal dexmedetomidine, which was associated with delirium-free days, but I, I assume and imagine that a lot more data and a lot more literature is going to come out in the future regarding dexmedetomidine and, and delirium. I'm so lucky to have Nick on the rounds all the time, right? Like there's so many little things about that I need to worry about starting valproic acid on patient. It's great to have you around to remind me of this can be started. Oh no, the LFT is not perfect for this patient. And then oh, you make sure you're checking ammonia level. So thank you for being there for me, Nick. It's always amazing to have great collaboration between our providers and pharmacists and to see, you know, what amazing things we can do um, when we work together. With that, obviously, there are still some challenges. What challenges have you run into with treating ICU delirium amongst a multidisciplinary team? I think one of the things that Nick mentioned earlier about a predominant type of delirium being hypoactive in the ICU, and we also talked about the fact that you know, early trainee, when they go see the patient, someone looks awake, but it, they sort of skip the step of assessing delirium. We talked about the ABCDEF bundle, right? So delirium assessment is important. While patients appear awake, they could have some degree of delirium in there. So recognizing and assessing delirium is really important in the ICU. And we talked about um, the use of non-pharmacologic things like making sure that there's good day-night cycles, minimize blood draws in the middle of the night, x-rays that could be done, maybe allowing patients to sleep some. Um, there's not enough information on how patients sleep in the ICU, but I, I could just see that not having good sleep could also affect their functions. We have early mobilization in our institution, but if you could get the patient moving early, that would be helpful too. I use a lot of family or friends on the bedside to help orient the patient. I mean, for me, when I round in the morning every day, even if the patient looks like they're just kind of RAS negative too, I would repeat what the day of the week is, what time it is for the patient, where they are, um, and explaining to them that there's a tube in their mouth and that they are safe. Just little cues for patients who really start understanding what's going on with them. And a choice of our analgesia is also important, right? If you have the opportunity to stop sedation early, why not do it? So that's the other thing that I, I stress during the care of these patients. And I think uh, one of the last challenges that I'll mention is dosing and titration of our antipsychotics when we do use them for delirium. A lot of times when we're looking at the patient, we're thinking like, oh, they have a little bit of delirium. Let's start an antipsychotic. Let's start quetiapine. Often I've noticed that we start very low doses and then we don't see an effect. So we stop it. 
I'll go back to the Devlin study um, they, that did see a reduction in delirium duration. They started at 50 Q12 of quetiapine, went all the way up to 200 Q12. So if you're looking at a patient and you're like, uh, let's start 25 QHS of quetiapine and see what that does, you know, we, we don't have great data to say whether it would or would not have an effect, but you're, you're really not giving it a chance almost at, at that point. And then on top of that, how often we should be increasing, decreasing doses of these agents based on how the patient's responding. And another big thing, especially that we noticed during, um, that we struggled with during COVID when we were using some of these oral sedatives even more as just sedation on top of delirium because of a lot of shortages on medications, the question of when to wean antipsychotics versus sedatives if both are being used together. So with that, if a patient is being treated with antipsychotics and sedation while intubated, what should be weaned first when trying to extubate the patient? I think there's um, two different strategies that you can approach this with. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but I can definitely cover the weaning sedatives first type of strategy and a strategy that we've used more frequently in COVID and now post-COVID. I think we've started to utilize the sedative effects of antipsychotics a, a bit more to avoid those excessive doses of those drips, side effects that come from them. We, of course, with throughout the last you know couple of years, we've been using higher doses of propofol, higher doses of fentanyl because of the severity of the ARDS in these patients. So trying to use some oral agents to get them off to prevent you know, the hypertriglyceridemia induced pancreatitis to prevent use of excess use of dexmedetomidine to prevent a lot of opioid tolerance and withdrawal. So I think um, if you're using those oral agents, then weaning sedatives first, that's kind of the, the goal for you. Because a lot of times our goal of using those scheduled antipsychotics is going to be to expedite extubation. Um, so coming down on those sedative drips where the antipsychotics don't give you that respiratory depression that those sedative drips do, allowing you to hopefully extubate a patient. There's definitely, this is one area where there is really no, no data that I am familiar with in terms of using these oral antipsychotics, oral sedating agents that aren't like methadone or something like that to decrease the sedative drips and to help extubate a patient, but it's almost like we're using it as a dexmedetomidine substitute to help kind of take the edge off, get them off sedatives before we can finally pull the tube in those, in those patients. I agree with that. I mean, using sedatives really doesn't treat their delirium symptoms. In fact, it may worsen their delirium as well. And I, I just worry sometimes we increase sedatives when someone is delirious to mask the symptoms instead of treating it. So I would agree to come down on sedatives first and working on getting them off antipsychotics. The other thing that is very important in the ICU setting is that we are so quick to escalate treatment that we often forget to de-escalate when the patients actually improve, right? So once you get someone off the bed and their overall mental status is improving, we really should start weaning off antipsychotic or just stopping them if the symptoms has improved. I, I think we're also responsible for the polypharmacy of patients if we don't be conscious of what we started in the acute settings. So with that, what is a misconception about ICU delirium that the providers may have? Nick, maybe you can take this one. Yeah, so I think one misconception, I know we've, we've talked about it a lot, but the misconception around hypoactive delirium 
uh, around its prevalence, its detriments that it does have to our patients. You talked about it's more difficult, maybe not necessarily more difficult to diagnose, but it's, it is the more common type of delirium and we don't recognize it as often because when you have that, you know, little old lady just sitting there cute in her chair, you don't, you know, you just look at her smile and you don't realize that underneath all that lethargy, it's actually that hypoactive delirium and we don't have great treatments for it. So I think that would be one of the biggest misconceptions is recognizing hypoactive delirium, doing all those things we can, like the non-farm measures, recognizing whatever underlying cause, whatever underlying disease process may be causing this to help treat that. And another big one I will mention is in terms of a misconception is side effects of the antipsychotics that we're using, the medications that we're using. Sometimes the antipsychotics can get a bad rap. We're worried about QTC prolongation. We're worried about EPS. We're worried about, you know, torsades and all of that. But the rates of these are all actually very low. And we saw in Mind USA that there really was almost no rates of torsades. And I think there may have been two patients who did have torsades, but none of them received antipsychotics in the last, you know, few days. And on top of that, we can actually use the other side effects to our advantage in these patients, you know, whether it's the sedating effects, which antipsychotic is more sedating, which antipsychotic is less sedating. We don't have great data to support the use, but we also don't have great data saying there's anything else that we can do. Um, so when we need an option, we're not just going to let the patient sit there, have that hyperactive delirium. We're going to try and treat them, try and fix that underlying cause, possibly using antipsychotics. And choosing the right antipsychotic can help some of those underlying issues as well. I totally agree with that. I think knowing what is the underlying cause of their delirium is uh, most important, right? So if you have a patient with liver failure, they're in the ICU and now they're delirious, I mean, giving them antipsychotic is not going to help, but in this case, you would give them the hepatic encephalopathy regimen. We had patients with alcohol abuse history, and they were on sedatives for their sepsis. And now as, a, as we come off on the sedatives, instead of using antipsychotic, we would choose something that would help them from withdrawing from their GABAergic agents. Um, so understanding the cause of delirium specific to the patient's would help our choices in choosing the agent to treat this. And I just want to stress the non-pharmacal strategies that we should be using and helping to treat delirium as well. It's easy to do and we could do it without. Sometimes I always think less is more in the, these cases when they're already having a lot of medications on board. If we could start pulling things off safely, we should try that as well. Well, I'm still taking notes. This has been a really informative session. With that, our last question for today is, are there any other clinical considerations or considerations we should think about when using medications for delirium treatment in the ICU? I think the, the biggest consideration that we always have to think about that um, Tina mentioned briefly before is the potential for inadvertent continuation upon discharge of the antipsychotics, the valproic acid, whatever we're using, if a treatment plan's not clear or it's not delineated in the medical record or handed off to the floor team or, you know, medication reconciled upon discharge. You do have a lot of studies that looked at this and they showed rates as high as 80% of continuation of new antipsychotic prescriptions upon ICU transfer and even as high as 30% upon hospital discharge. Granted, we may not know if some of these actually had 
a reason behind them or if it was a taper, uh, but that's a, a massive number, almost a third of patients that are started on new antipsychotic prescriptions that are getting discharged on these as, as well. Um, and that can lead to all those more chronic side effects, more detrimental side effects that we may not see in an acute ICU setting when we're on this medication for five days or seven days. I agree 100%. I think if we stick with the ABCDEF bundle, we should stop sedation whenever possible, try to assess the patient's ability to breathe on his or her own, making sure that our choice of sedatives and analgesia is correct for the patient, assessing delirium and not miss the delirium that we need to be mindful of, and then moving the patient, early mobilization, and engage family to help getting these patients to a safe space. When we escalate, we also need to remember to de-escalate. And I think one strategy we can always do to hopefully achieve that, uh, I've had a success with that past institution, is utilizing delirium order sets at your institution that not only may guide the provider on appropriate medication therapies to use, but can have set stop dates. You're trying it for 72 hours, the order is falling off through the order set. Or when you're putting this in, just consider those preemptive stop dates in those orders for new antipsychotics, making sure you are discussing with all the patient care providers, the floor transfer patient care provider, that this is a new prescription. And just recognizing that it is a huge potential concern for outpatients and possibly a little bit more risky than, you know, we think about GI prophylaxis and how many patients come back in without a indication for famotidine or pantoprazole. But when we're talking about you know, high doses of cotiapine or valproic acid versus famotidine can definitely have some, some even more detrimental effects. Those are some really wonderful points. Hopefully our ASHP listeners have found this session to be extremely educational. Thank you, Dr. Quinn and Dr. Chen for joining us for today's episode of Therapeutic Thursday podcast. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources you can find member-exclusive offerings such as research centers, including those in critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and many more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP Connect Communities, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays and join us here every Thursday where we'll be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.